A new clinical review on bmj.com discusses diagnosis and management of first seizure in adults. I'm Navjot Lada and I'm joined by Heather Angus Lapan, who is a consultant neurologist and epilepsy lead at the Royal Free Hospital and Barnet Chase Farm Hospital in London. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Um, when talking about seizures, what kind of episodes are we, we talking about? I think that's a key, um, a, a very important point, Navjot, that uh, seizures cover a wide range of manifestations and um, particularly in primary care, it's crucial to be aware of, of some of the milder um, end of the spectrum. So um, a seizure can be an aura, which is a, a subjective experience um, all the way through to a, a major tonic-clonic convulsion, which everyone will recognise. Um, but if you pick up the minor events, you can sometimes save people from having major events and get onto the diagnosis much much more easily and also if someone's had a major event if you look back in the history at least two-thirds of people will have had a minor event which means that they've actually got epilepsy and not a, a first seizure oh right that many yes wow. okay yes. so that is a key a key key thing to distinguish okay and how how common are first seizures First seizures are, are, are very common. Um, it, it's estimated that if you get to the age of 80, you have about a 10% chance of having a seizure or epilepsy, and half of those will be febrile seizures. So that's, that, that, that is, is the single biggest group of first seizures. Um, and we really don't have any figures about the, the minor episodes because there, there are people who have always minor episodes, never have a major episode, and we, we simply don't ever, ever see them. Okay. So probably more common than that even. Okay. You mentioned febrile seizures. Can you give us a sense of the other sort of common causes and relatively how common they are? Yes. Yeah, so so in 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 adults um the, the of the other first seizures uh, there'll be there'll be a, a percentage where where they never recur that may be provoked or um have you know have an acute infection uh, as a cause and then of of the others there'll be um a, a, about half of them will be will be due to idiopathic um epilepsy and that is they're going they're, they're likely to recur and 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 some of the others will be um of unknown cause and and be symptomatic of of a of a focal problem in the brain which might be a structural lesion or, or maybe um, maybe a vascular disease as being the biggest groups. Overall in the world, infection is one of the most important causes and very common. Right, right. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned in the review that the diagnosis is only correct in two-thirds of cases and that a good history is vital. Uh, what points should the history cover? Uh, yeah, I think the history needs to get uh, start with a very clear description of the events, uh, and really, if if possible, you need to get an eyewitness account if if there's been loss of consciousness, mm. and it's a matter of of having the time to go through that very meticulously, um, so that you get a clear a clear description of of, of the event if it's if it's a, a involves loss of consciousness, mm -hmm. and you can then differentiate it from from a faint or from non-epileptic attacks. And the other crucial point in the history is is to look for other milder events that haven't been recognised, such as uh, aura, um, brief episodes of staring to suggest that there are absence seizures, uh, and then overnight events where the person might wake up having bitten their tongue or have blood on the pillow to suggest they've had a, an overnight seizure. Okay. And again, how, how often is that history from the patient versus, say, family or a partner? Is it, do you tend to try and involve... Yes, I think if if you if you can, you really need to get an eyewitness. And um, I mean, if if there is no um, eyewitness, it makes it makes the diagnostic accuracy generally lower. Okay. Uh, but but there are some key points to um, to major seizures which uh, you can you can ascertain even even if there wasn't an eyewitness. 
um, and and for example whether the person's bitten the side of their tongue uh, and and uh, and to some extent whether they were confused you can get indications of that from how long it took them to remember what happened after the seizure right okay and are there any other sort of key sort of distinguishing features that sort of help you separate separate out whether something is due to uh, a seizure yes I think for convulsions the the most important things are tongue biting um, post post event confusion post dictal mm-hmm. confusion which means be, that the person is disorientated afterwards um, can't give a clear account um, doesn't have memory of, of the of the immediate period and if that goes on for more than 10 minutes then that's a very strong indicator of right. of a seizure during the actual event um, if the person is cyanosed and if there is regular shaking uh, regular clonic activity, regular shaking, then that's very much indicative of, um, of a, an epileptic seizure. The eyes are, are usually open during an epileptic seizure, but also during a faint. Okay. And I think um, contrary to lay perception, um, uh, in urinary incontinence and injury aren't very, aren't very discriminating. They can happen in all, all types of, of, loss of, of loss of consciousness or apparent loss of consciousness. Oh, right. That's interesting. That was always one of the things we were kind of taught to ask as something that might differentiate. But actually, it's, it, it happens in, in many different types of uh, loss yes. of consciousness. That's interesting. Okay. Now, in the review, you give us a really nice overview of the different types of um, seizure, um, which you split into those that occur without loss of consciousness and those that occur with loss of consciousness. Um, can you take us through some of those, the the different seizure types and perhaps important features that, that uh, a doctor ought to recognise? Yeah, so of those where there's no loss of consciousness, um, some of the, the important groups are aura, um, which can be a uh, it w- it which means that the person is is fully aware. They may have a sensory experience um, such as a, a déjà vu or jamais vu. Uh, they may have a, a strange taste or smell, uh, rising epigastric sensation. Um, they can have um, they can have myoclonic jerks as another manifestation, and uh, and you you can also get motor seizures where there's a, there's a focal disturbance of motor function, usually shaking for a brief period. Okay. And all of them have to be differentiated from, in some cases, from normal phenomena. For example, déjà vu is, is, is something that most of us will occasionally experience. And um, in that situation, the déjà vu that's, uh, that's due to epilepsy is usually unpleasant. It's usually more intense and feels as though it's something out of the ordinary from, from normal experience and, and often occurs much more frequently than, than in, in, in a, in a, as, as a normal phenomena. Um, for, and myoclonus again can be normal the hypnic myoclonus that most of us will occasionally get as we're drifting off to sleep and, and wa- awakens us is, is absolutely normal we can reassure people about that um, but na- uh, myoclonus during the daytime has a number of, of causes including uh, epilepsy and, and, and has to be very carefully teased out Okay, so these are the kind of the um, milder forms of seizure that yes. you, you, you mentioned that it's important to try and look for when you're assessing a patient with perhaps their first seizure, but possibly it might be m- more than that. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and taking investing time in, in to take that history carefully is is really worthwhile. Okay. Okay. And then um, the seizures that occur with loss of consciousness. Yeah. So uh, so those can be um, there's there's a type of seizure where there's sometimes partial awareness, um, which are complex partial seizures, focal seizures, and those are often automatisms and uh, curious uh, curious phenomena because it looks as though the person is doing something purposeful, uh, but they're utilizing something in the environment, um, and uh, and it's it's not actually purposeful movement, or they may be smacking their lips um, and and or fiddling with their clothes um, these these in themselves are not usually dangerous to the person but can be socially very embarrassing because um, sometimes they might take off their clothes and and clearly that's going to be a, a, a very embarrassing if they're at work mm. um, or they they could be lose awareness and be crossing the street at the time and uh, and, and and have an accident so then they're not always mild in that sense okay um, and uh, then, then there are seizures where there's complete loss of awareness, uh, which at the mildest end of the spectrum will be absences, uh, where the person will be staring and vacant for a, a second or even less than a second, uh, all the way through to tonic-clonic seizures, mm. which we're all um, fairly familiar yeah, with. The sort of classic yes. jerking. And what people think of as being an epileptic seizure. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, and you mentioned in the review that transient loss of consciousness is the most common presentation of first seizure. Or that's the broad that we, sort of yes. name that it's given. Um, what are the other differential diagnoses to consider when you're assessing a patient that's presented? With yeah, so most most important to think about are, are syncope, uh, which is really there are two two big broad categories: reflex or vasovagal syncope, which is benign, mm-hmm. um, very common, and um, you know at least half of us will have will have that in a lifetime, if not more. And lots of the people who have a reflex syncope won't even get, come to medical attention. Mm-hmm. Um, then cardiac syncope, which is much rarer, but due to a, an arrhythmia or a structural abnormality of the heart, extremely dangerous and uh, really a, a medical emergency to get those people sorted out as quickly as possible. And then a rather uncommon type of, um, of apparent loss of consciousness are the non-epileptic attacks, which have a whole series of other names. Used to be called pseudo-seizures or hysterical seizures, um, sometimes called dissociative seizures or psychogenic non-epileptic attacks. And in those, there's a psychological or psychiatric trigger, and uh, they uh, they they can be quite difficult to diagnose and and can be difficult to treat as well. Um, yeah, that's certainly true in my experience, where people sort of attend repeatedly and they're given sort of different labels and yes. and often, you know, very confusing for them and for the sort of medical team as well. And um, what sort of features would you tend to find in a in someone that has non-epileptic attack disorder, yeah, usually uh, the, the, they're more prolonged than a than an epileptic seizure. May go, even go on for up to thirty minutes or more, and the person will usually retain normal colour. Eyes are more commonly closed, and quite frequently there's some evidence that they have some awareness of the surrounds, which may be that they resist eye opening if you try and open their eyes, or they may um, actually make eye contact or look look towards a mirror if there's a mirror nearby, um, or they may actually hit out or, or make some purposeful movement of their of their arm. Um, so so there's evidence that they have some awareness, um, normal colour. 
and uh, and and they usually recover very rapidly afterwards. Um, so if 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 they're you know if they go if these episodes are going on for a long time and they don't become cyanosed and their oxygen levels are normal and their eyes are closed, then that's a very strong indicators that that they're not epileptic attacks. Right. And although they're uncommon, maybe only 10% of, of episodes of loss of, of consciousness, um, they take up a lot of, of our time and effort. And it is, it is really important to make the diagnosis early because um, it, you can end up, people can end up in intensive care, intubated, ventilated with non-epileptic attacks if, if the diagnosis isn't recognized early on if they come to accident and emergency. Gosh. And again, as, as you said, that um, feature of post-episode confusion is another important distinguishing feature for, for both yes, syncope yes. and for, for non-epileptic attack disorder. That's right, yes. So syncope, you rapidly recover. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, and then thinking about first seizures more generally, are there any risk factors that, that one should be aware of um, when, when seeing these patients? Yes, um, the, the overall in the world, um, social deprivation is probably one of the biggest risk factors um, and uh, going along with um, infections and, and malnutrition, all those those factors um, as at the times when when we see most first seizures are early on in life. And there, there'll be the febrile convulsions, um, very often associated with with um, some sort of infection, and most commonly a viral infection. And then in later life, we we see uh, vascular disease being a, a very common um, infections, and and occasionally tumours and other structural lesions. Okay, tumours tend to be the things that that a lot of people sort of worry about in, in this situation. Is that your experience yes. as well? I, th I think if you if if a, an older person presents, then then tumours probably on on the top of their mind in terms of of worries. And we that's you know we we do imaging um, in people where we we don't think this is idiopathic, uh, and and that's important. And and very often in the majority of cases normal, uh, but important to be able to reassure people about that. Okay. Um, tumours are pretty uncommon as a as a cause of first seizure, mm. less than ten percent. But um, but we really have to be be aware of that as as, as something on pe everyone's minds. Mm. Okay, we'll come back to investigations in a minute. Um, just moving on to management first. Uh, what should the initial management steps involve? Yes. Uh, so if if a person's had a um, a convulsion, then it's it's really about all of all of the basics of resuscitation and stabilization, protecting the airway and and so on, and uh, and and those those first aid measures. Um, and then it's looking looking to see if there's a if there's a provocation, uh, and the the key things are, are metabolic factors uh, and infection are going to be the the big the big uh, the big two that we look at at the beginning, and 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 that was going to involve doing blood tests and. Um, and 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 looking looking for infection and uh, you know with with vital signs and and a general examination as right. well as a neurological examination. Okay, is there anything in your experience that you know when you come to review these patients afterwards, say if they've been admitted to the ward, that that gets missed commonly or that is overlooked in that initial sort of those initial steps? I think people uh, people in in my experience where where I've worked do that do those uh, those first um, aid things very well now they're aware of doing the the basic blood test the sodium and the glucose aware of doing an ECG to make sure there's not a rhythm disturbance um, probably um, uh, the there, there's a tendency to 
um, to overdo doing uh, doing a CT scan in, in someone who's recovered well when in fact um, if they need a, a scan it's it's usually better to do an MRI scan and if they've recovered well to do that early but but not necessarily do it in the accident and emergency room because sometimes they then have a CT and an MRI scan when in fact they just needed to have an MRI scan. Okay. Well, this seems like a good point to move on then to to the investigations. So uh, you mentioned the important initial investigations to do, and then you mentioned brain imaging and EEG. So yes. so where, where do they fit into the, the overall sort of management package? Mm, I, I, this is very much tailored to what, 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 what's happened to the person and their age. So in a younger person um, with the features suggestive of a of a, of a primary or idiopathic epilepsy, now often called in the, with the revised terminology a genetic epilepsy, then an EEG may give very vital clues and give us a, a very firm diagnosis. So, um, for example, if someone has um, has absence seizures, then 98% of the time the EEG will be abnormal during hyperventilation, and and then if you've got that diagnosis, it's it's really clear cut. And if there are other other groups such as um, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, where they may have myoclonic jerks and and a convulsion at, at some other stage, then again the EEG will be uh, will be specific for the diagnosis. And those people wouldn't need to have imaging. Um, but if the if in an, particularly in older people, when there are focal features, we'll be doing an EEG and and an MRI scan as well, looking for focal changes. Okay, and what's the timing of those investigations? Would they happen during that first admission? We, we um, in the UK, we don't have the resources to usually do an MRI scan during the first admission and, and, and also, unfortunately, EEG, although um, studies by King and by others have shown that if you do an EEG within the first um, 24 hours, the yield is the highest, so it would be most efficient to be able to do that. Unfortunately, we don't manage that usually, but we, um, we try and do them early, and, uh, and, and the recommendations are to do them within the first um, two to four weeks, the invest- to be reviewed by a specialist and, and have the investigations done. And sometimes, um, the you know, seeing a specialist will will prevent investigations. For example, if I see someone and they have reflex syncope, um, then they need to have blood tests and an ECG, which will have been done in accident and emergency, and um, and won't need any further investigations. Okay. Um, and then, what about? Um treatments then uh, presumably that arises as a result of all those other tests that you've done yes i think the um the important point is that the uh, the diagnosis is made from the history and the investigations help us a lot with uh, with with actually defining what the recurrence risk is and in simple terms the, the default position after one event is not to treat but if there are factors um, from from the uh, the history to suggest that actually this isn't a first seizure that this is a this is epilepsy, or if the investigations show a significant abnormality, then uh, then we would we would would recommend treatment. And significant abnormalities would be a focal change on the MRI scan, um, often suggested by some focal neurological problem that you can see on in examining the person, or a, a, a an important EEG change, which is a spike or a or a a, a, um, a, a spike and wave change on on the EEG. Okay. Okay. And as you mentioned, 
some of these patients will have one seizure and then it's unlikely to recur again and perhaps their investigations are all normal. How how do you tend to manage those patients? Because I imagine that the thought of another seizure must be quite scary for yes, them. Yes, yes. I think that brings up a really important point. We, we don't recommend treatment um, to patients we consider to be low risk. And um, if your EEG is normal and your MRI is normal, then your risk of another seizure is generally um, less than 30%. However, in some individual cases, we would, st- you know, we would, we would go along with treatment because they may be, say, living alone, very isolated, may have had a very um, dangerous seizure, may have, uh, may be at high risk of fracture, and for individual reasons, we would recommend that they they go on to treatment. So it's it's a decision that needs to be taken with with the patient, um, depending on their individual circumstances. And then for those who who have a low risk and the investigations are all normal, it's um, I think that the primary care become very important in um, in their their follow up. We we usually don't see them more than twice. Uh, but um, they may go back to see their their um, general practitioner and feel quite bewildered that they've had had a major event. They're not allowed to drive, and yet um, they they're told that they don't need any further treatment. And it's a bit bewildering. Then they need to have support, and uh, the the uh, primary care doctors and nurses need to be aware of that because in a small minority they they may become significantly depressed. Right. You need to be on the lookout for so that. It's important to be aware that, that that can happen. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you, you brought up driving. So let's talk about the impact that a first seizure might have on other activities. Now, driving tends to be the, the big one that everyone worries about. Uh, what advice do you do you give someone about driving when they've had a first seizure? Yeah, I think that uh, that it, driving is is important in daily life and also a symbol of freedom for a lot of people, and so it 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 it, it does, as you say, exercise a lot of um, a lot of interest and concern. Um, we I think when people are first seen, they, they need to be told, and and uh, the the people they're with need to be told that they they shouldn't drive and and uh, and need to inform the regulating authority in in the in the UK. That's the uh, the DVLA, and um, in other countries. The systems are, are slightly different, um, but but to, to basically not to drive and and in in the um, I think in in having a separation from uh, from the from the doctors, it's it, it is quite helpful that we uh, we then give a report and the um, the central body decides whether the person can drive. Um, generally, if they've had a single seizure and it's there are no other events and all the investigations are are normal then um, often they'll be allowed to drive after six months. Uh, if there are abnormalities on their investigations or they've had more than one event, then it'll be f- for 12 months. Okay. But a recent change has been that if there's, um, if there's complete awareness during the seizure, there is some discretion and sometimes the DVLA will say that if the person's only having aura, they may be allowed to, to drive. Okay, right. I mean, that... The conversation about driving can be a challenging one sometimes. Um, What do you say to patients who are reluctant to stop driving or who you think are going to continue despite your advice? Yeah, it, it does. It does often um, make them very unhappy. Um, most people, though, if you explain to them the the re, you know the rationale and the fact that they could have a serious accident and hurt themselves or others, will will accept that. Um, although they you know they um, explain that that's going to have a major effect sometimes on their livelihood. Mm. 
Um, but but most people will accept it. And it's really uncommon. I've rarely encountered it that they say they, they will continue to drive. Um, if they, they do, then they need to be aware that um, this in, in the UK would mean that they would they, they would, would be you know breaking the law and that they if they have an accident that their insurance won't cover them and all those other implications as well as the, the implications for safety. Mm. Um, and then if, if they really um, are resistant to that, there is a uh, there is a you know there is a uh, capacity for you to um, to to you know to say that you would have to report this mm-hmm. to the central authority um, after you know after explaining it and trying to write to them and and persuade them to mm-hmm. to stop driving voluntarily. In the end, most people will do that. I, I don't. I've I've only I think you know once ever had to um, to take further action about it. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, it's one of those rare instances where you are able to breach confidentiality if you have serious concerns about about whether someone will will do that. Yes. And you can report them to the the central authority. And again, I think with with um, with primary care um, uh, doctors and nurses, because they've they've had a, a long relationship usually with the person, that can be a very helpful reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And if we're all saying the same thing, that usually will persuade people that you know that the advice is is. Is reasonable, yeah. If, that's a if, great tip. if not difficult, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, um, what about the impact on other activities such as swimming and sex? Yeah, I think I think swimming is is an area where most people should be able to swim, provided they can swim before the the seizure. Um, I think we we there's often unnecessary restrictions with swimming. If the person um, informs uh, those who are there and, and has someone who's able to do first aid and go swimming with someone else, it's usually fine. Um, some of my my patients have severe other disabilities, and we actually formalise um, swimming swimming guidelines so that the carers have a clear plan of action of how many people are going to go with them and all the details so that that means they don't have to miss out on that activity. Um, diving is uh, it, the, the regulations vary throughout the world, but um, but but usually they're, they're they're pretty strict and they err on a, on a very cautious side. Not not I mean, we don't have any very clear cut evidence, but um, but usually it's for you need to be free of any events for quite a few years before you um, you would be allowed to dry, to dive, I should say. Um, sex, we have very little information. There's no information really about first seizures and sex. Um, there is uh, there is a suggestion from a study in people with with quite severe epilepsy that about a quarter of them worry about having a seizure during sex, and maybe eight percent do have had um, who've had multiple seizures have had had um, a, a seizure during some sexual activity. Um, but we, I mean, we try. We should try and we should talk about this more. I think we we. Um, we we often feel a bit embarrassed to and and don't and uh, and we, most people um, the best advice is just to continue your usual activity and um, and at least talk about it because that clears the air and makes mm. it easier for them. And you mentioned that in the process of writing this review, your conversations with patients have changed slightly. The way you communicate with them has changed. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I think in writing this, um, having you know read the literature more, seeing what areas we can, we have good information about what, what areas are lacking. It, it has helped me to um, to be able to give um, patients more specific information. Mm-hmm. And I think the more more you know, the more confident you can be. And that shows in, in how you present things to people. And I think being confident and being um, giving hope to people is, is really important. And um, I think we, we sometimes underestimate the importance of our placebo effect, if you want to put it that mm-hmm. way, that we, you know, having having someone who knows what they're doing really helps people. It gives it makes 
makes them feel at ease and uh, at a time of, of often great anxiety when they've had a, an event and where they feel they're out of control of that of that um, particular part of their life. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and then if patients want more information or, um, you know, want some, to find out more for themselves, are there any useful resources that you direct them to? Yes, I think one of the the revolutions in epilepsy care and in first seizure care has been um, a reduction in stigma, and this has largely come about through uh, through the charities who uh, do excellent work. We now have um, very good websites um, throughout the world, um, and in the UK there's Epilepsy Action, and at the Epilepsy Society there's um, the International League Against Epilepsy internationally, and patients and and um, and professionals can get good information there. And, and also a lot of them have helplines where they can talk to people. And this is not just, not only um, general advice, but sometimes very specific advice about, say, travel insurance if they want to go overseas uh, and about um, how to um, access benefits or, or, um, or special concessions for tr- public transport. And, and so they could be you know, very practical and useful. Yeah. yeah, that sounds really helpful. Okay, and um, finally then, what do you think are the kind of future directions for further research I, I think we we need to do more to improve the the um, the uh, di- uh, diagnostic accuracy and that's that is um, going to come I think through um, more education and through trying um, to have um, to have some sort of st- structured questionnaires that we use uh, in in places particularly where there are less resources so that um, that can 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 be improved I think that's a big area. Uh, there are areas of education where we need to get more information, for example, with um, uh, with the risks of it, the mortality of epilepsy, sudden death in epilepsy. We need to uh, have better ways of communicating that information without causing negative psychological damage to people who are ever, you know, already quite burdened. Um, and I think we need to have um, um, better better um, better plans for for treatment. I mean, that's a big area for for epilepsy that we need to have. We we, we still treat seizures rather than often the underlying cause of of the seizures oh that's been really helpful that's thanks for that brilliant overview of um, first seizure in adults heather thanks so much pleasure thank you thank you for joining us heather angus lapan consultant neurologist and epilepsy lead at the royal free hospital and barnet chase farm hospital in london for more information on diagnosis and management of first seizure in adults check out our clinical review now available on bmj.com